And that is our prayer. Holy Spirit, fall fresh on us. Fill us and use us. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with y'all. We're in this series looking at the book of Acts, grateful for where God has us as a fellowship, grateful for what he's doing in and through us. But we're looking at this holy church, this early church that launched the gospel into their communities and into the world, and we're asking ourselves, are there some things maybe we can learn that would encourage us, fill us with even more joy and even more power and uh, have even a, a greater effect at bringing the good news that we have in Jesus to the world? So we're going to talk about a subject this morning that feels like to me got about as broad of theological views on the role of the Holy Spirit as any theological issues within the, what I'm going to call the Protestant uh, evangelical orthodox boundaries. Feels like to me there are more views, differing views on how the Holy Spirit works than maybe any other primary theological view. And I, I think in terms of extremes, and my conviction is usually the truth and the healthiest view is somewhere in the middle. Going to try and promote that using Acts this morning. But some of the views as we think about, we're going to be looking at Pentecost. There are some that, that hold out there, and I would put them on one end of this spectrum. That to be baptized in the Spirit, to be filled in the Spirit, is what happens to believers, and the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. And on one extreme, if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not a believer. A slight derivation of that is with kind of this two-level uh, of, of Christianity, which again is out here on the extreme. There are ordinary Christians, and then there are super-duper Christians. Uh, again, evidenced by baptism in the Spirit and speaking in tongues. And I, I think that's out there. On the other end of the spectrum, and I would put our fellowship probably leaning more towards this way, uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, he did a bunch of stuff back then, but really he doesn't do that much today. Uh, in terms of today, mostly what we're dependent upon is uh, his just indwelling us and helping us to think strategically. And uh, we got to figure this out and we got to get it Done. So we're jumping into an area right now. Are you loving this? And uh, I, I'm going to try and deal with this fairly quickly. And if you have questions, I would love to talk about uh, this more with you. But we're going to look at Pentecost. And here's for me the big idea. The Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus as he promised at Pentecost. Jesus promised this was going to happen. And he's actually the guy that sends the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in the text, to empower those first believers of Jesus to evangelize. That's what it was. And the question I want to wrestle with today, and we're going to get there, 
is then how does what happened at Pentecost relate to us in 2023 in Yorba Linda, California at Richfield Community Church? And again, you will be able to find all kinds of different views coming from Pentecost. So you're ready to read the text. We're looking here, first of all, and we're just going to look in. We're just going to, I'm going to move through the text here, a lot of verses pretty clearly, but what happened? But the first thing to remember is that this was promised by John the Baptist. All the Gospels have this account. Acts is the second volume of Luke. In his first volume, he wrote this. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The last words that Jesus spoke, before he ascended into heaven, the last thing he said is, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. This is the purpose of this empowering, to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Father, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. God himself. This is a fuzzy area for us. Not always clearly understood. Not always clearly articulated. Feels like to me there are abuses in terms of understanding the Holy Spirit. But my fear on the other side is that there might be a power available to us that we're not making as much use of as you would have us. So that's my prayer. My prayer above all else is that your Holy Spirit will guide me and will work in each of us to hear what you have to say. We're trusting you, Father, you to reveal your truth to us about the Holy Spirit. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So what happened? Let's read it. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? The prejudice back then was uneducated folks by and large. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, 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 Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them calling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now it talks all of them together. We didn't look at the end of chapter 1, but you look at the end of chapter 1, and there's about 120 believers at this time all gathered in one place. So it's more than the disciples we're talking about. So what happened? 
The believers, Luke tells us, were filled. I think that's an important verb. With the Holy Spirit. And it was manifest in three ways. Sound of rushing and wind. There wasn't a rushing wind. It was the sound of a rushing wind. Tongues of fire resting on each of them. And then they spoke in other languages that they couldn't speak except that something's happening here that's miraculous. They're speaking in other language. Glossolalia is the term. Now they spoke of the mighty words of God. Does anybody remember the last words Jesus said before he ascended into heaven? Are they coming to anybody? Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and you're going to be my what? Witnesses. So these guys are witnessing in languages that they don't actually speak to the power of God. People's response. Luke gives us two characterizations. They were amazed and perplexed because all of a sudden they're in town for this big harvest carnival, 50 days after. Wait till you get old. All you young people, there will be here. <laughs> Johnny, 50 days after? Passover. Passover, thank you. 50 days after Passover and you got this big carnival. This is just to give Johnny a chance to input. All the rest was feigned. I really remembered that term, Passover. And uh, they were all amazed. You got these people from all over the known world at that time. They're there and uh, uh, they're amazed and perplexed. And as Luke summarizes what they're thinking, it's not everybody's thinking this, but here's the summary he puts in the text because we're going to pick it up from here. Are they drunk? That's what they're wondering. Now, again, I would go, their ability to evaluate the situation, most drunk people, I've never seen a drunk person I know speak in another language. I've been with a few that they didn't actually know. I've just never seen that. But these guys are stretching for an explanation. And then Luke's going to give us, uh, Peter's going to give us a response. Now, we're going to pick up the text from there. Amazing thing, miracles happening. People are trying to figure out what's going on, and Peter uh, uh, one of those filled with the Spirit then explains. And here's the first thing he's going to say. There are going to be three pieces to his explanation. What's going on? The first one, this is prophecy fulfilled. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now eleven, because at the end of chapter one, they added, uh, they added Matthias to the apostles in place of Judas. So we're catching up here. So there's actually 12 of them total again. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel hundreds of years before today. What you're experiencing is a prophecy given hundreds of years now being fulfilled. And it's verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on the all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall, shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So there's 120 believers. This just wasn't for the apostles. This was for everybody there. Those 120 believers, they all get to experience this. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire. Here I think he's talking about it's a prophecy that has to do with this age, but also the consummation of the kingdom uh, uh, that Peter's going to include so he can get to the last phrase here. Uh, uh, the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. I think that final consummation, the great and 
and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone, here's the big idea. Here's a prophecy. What's the big idea of it? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think as Joel writes that, he's talking about God generally. We're going to notice that as Peter goes on and explains this, the Lord he has in mind is just not God, the whole Trinity, but specifically Jesus. Because he's going to go on, and here's his idea. What you just saw happen, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the proclamation of Jesus. These folks are, are, are now moved to speaking languages they don't ordinarily speak. You got the tongues of fire. You got the sound like a rushing of wind. This is getting people's attention. But they are talking about Jesus. I want you to notice here how he unpacks this, how logically and how comprehensively in a very short period of time. If I could be this concise, sermons wouldn't be near this long. But look at what he says here in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God through him, did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He lived. Go back and read the first volume. He was born of a virgin, and through most of that book, he talks about his life, his teaching, the miracles, all that stuff he did. And then you get to the end, he's going to get to the part now he's going to remember. But Jesus lived. He lived a life like nobody else lived. Then verse 20, uh, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing happened to Jesus that was by accident. This was all part of God's plan. Nevertheless, you crucified him and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. The most unjust event in the history of the world. Who planned it? God. Carried it out through lawless people. He died. He lived he died. Now look at verse 24. Anybody want to give a guess as to where he goes? He lived, he died, and you, anybody want to guess what his third point is right here? Anybody? You cowards. I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will give you a little more boldness. Anybody want to go? Anybody want to guess where he's going? He rose from the dead. He summarizes who Jesus is. So what you're seeing out there, he's explaining to them and trying to make crystal clear because some of them think he's, they're drunk. They're not drunk. They're talking about Jesus. So verse, four, tw verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David, King David, says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. A quote from Psalm 16, another, this is prophecy. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also uh, will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon uh, my soul to Hades. That's literally what it is here. Translation from Psalm 16, which is Sheol, a place of the dead, the grave, the place, uh, yeah. It, it, or let your Holy One see corruption. I believe the best understanding here is really he's not going to stay in, in, in the grave. You have made known to me my one of my favorite verses, if not my favorite. You have made, Psalm 1611, you've made known to me the path of life, and you will make uh, uh, me full of gladness with your presence. What you're seeing is prophecy fulfilled, and don't miss this. This is all about whom? This is all about whom? This is all about whom? I would say it's all about Jesus. That's what I'd say. Because that's what's going on here, and that's what Peter's trying to communicate. It's not about Jesus. It's about Jesus. They aren't drunk. They're telling you in languages that they don't know, but you know about 
Jesus. And he is God and the Messiah, this Jesus. Peter goes on. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today and his body is still in it. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. David's dead, his didn't. He was actually speaking ultimately about Jesus. Am I to verse 32? Yep. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. They had just seen about 10 days earlier Jesus ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you've crucified. It's about Jesus, and he is God, and he is the Messiah. Then Luke's going to tell us what the response was of a bunch of people, a bunch of them. Not everybody, but a pretty significant number. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Very cool. So what happens? There's 120 believers, and it gets to 3,120 in a day. The church is launched. Now, what's the response? The people are cut to the heart. They're hearing this story. They're hearing about Jesus, and they're convicted of their sin, and they're convicted of their need of Jesus. That's what happens. They get to that place where if we're here today treasuring Christ, we have all been. We're desperate, and we are helpless, and we are hopeless on our own. There's a holy God who loves us, but we know we are in big trouble, except for Jesus. They're cut to the heart. And they recognize their Jesus. They put their trust in Jesus. They repent of the way they were living, which primarily has to do with how they viewed Jesus. Whatever it was before, they're now looking at him and they're seeing that he is God and he is the Savior. And they're committing to follow him. And as an expression of that, they're baptized. They take him out to the river. Because of all this, guys, again... Hopefully we know this experience if you're here. Their sins were forgiven. They received the Holy Spirit. And we jump from 120 to 3,120 people in one day. Because it's not all about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Thank you. So what is the, what, what, who is this about? We're getting better. We're still not there, but I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. 
to give us even more confidence and more boldness when it comes to the name of Jesus. This is what happened. Now, this is a text. My view is people build more theology from this than maybe they should. And so what I'm going to do is talk about the Holy Spirit here. And it's going to relate to this text, but I'm going to use lots of other biblical texts. I'm not going to quote them, but I'm going to give you a, a more full picture, my picture of the Holy Spirit, particularly as it relates to what happens at Pentecost. But, but I'm going to go beyond that if you're comfortable in, in the time I have. So here's the way I see it. Pentecost is a promised, spectacular event where believers were especially empowered by the Holy Spirit to boldly evangelize. You with me? That's what happened. Now, I'm going to try and unpack a broader theology of the Holy Spirit that relates to this, but hopefully relevant. Uh, how is it relevant uh, to us? So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. And, uh, Holy Spirit, you, you guys know he's like omnipresent. You guys get that, right? So when we use terminology like this, there are limits to human language because he's not actually fluid. He is a spirit. So we're using human language the best we can to describe this. And, and I want to talk about the Holy Spirit's, what I see as three primary work ways he works in our lives as believers. Now, don't draw too clear lines as I give you these three categories. But, but here's, here's how I see it. The first thing that he does in our lives is, is regenerating work. And he's the Holy Spirit moves to bring us to faith. Now, are we aware of this when we come to faith? I've never met anybody yet, and I would include myself in that, that was aware the Holy Spirit was working in my life. I believed it was up to me. I was working hard. I was thinking. I did a lot of research. I did a lot of study on the credibility of text. And when I got there, I was oblivious to the fact that it was actually the Holy Spirit. The only way I figured that was, I kept reading the Bible, and that's what those guys told me actually happened. So if you're here today and you're still considering whether or not you want to treasure Christ or you're online and you haven't made that commitment yet, we are thrilled you're listening. Here's what I'm confident of if you're listening. God is doing that regenerative work right now in your life. That's that you're just even interested in, in, in hearing me uh, uh, bloviate is, 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 is probably uh, 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 is, is work of the Holy Spirit bringing you to that place. So that's, that's the first thing we know, that if we come to trust Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit draws us. The second category then is once we come to treasure Christ, we're told, and the verb I tend to use is that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in us. He continues to fill us with joy. He continues to transform us more into the likeness of, likeness of Christ. The theological term is sanctification. We call it here ongoing spiritual transformation. We mean the same thing. But that work takes place in us. Do we put effort into this? Yes. Who's the guy that actually makes that work? The Holy Spirit. He's the one that even motivates us to do the work that we do. So I had somebody ask me this week, well, how do you know what's the Holy Spirit and what's you? I stopped asking that question a long time ago. I, I, it's just the Holy Spirit working. Does he motivate me? I wake up every morning wanting to be happier. I wake up every morning trying to get a fuller glimpse of his glory. Uh, um, I believe ultimately that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And then there's this third 
category. Now, between the second and third, I don't want you to see such a too strict line, but I'm going to call it filling. And that's when the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to talk about this some more here, in those in whom he indwells, actually empowers them to more fully express and more boldly express the gospel. So if you ask me, were those 120 people in that room before Pentecost, were they indwelt by the Holy Spirit? What do you think I would say? Yeah. Paul says in Romans 8, you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So my conviction is, and we're at the point in time where you got the new kingdom, the new covenant being initiated. You got lots of things going on. The Spirit coming in a new way. Because I grew up with this idea that, uh, you know, we're like empty glasses and there was really no Holy Spirit until Pentecost. Well, read the Old Testament. He was working uh, in a fewer people in a lighter way. This promise was at Joel that he's going to touch a, a, a lot of lives. So that's what I want to talk about now. You guys okay with it? You don't have to agree with any of this. You understand that every week, right? I'm just trying to give you what I consider the healthiest, most biblical view of what's actually happening at Pentecost. My interest for us is how does it apply to us. So I want you to notice that, first of all, Luke used this verb, and I think he's using it very specifically. He used it in his gospel before he ever got to Pentecost. Elizabeth, when Mary enters and, and the baby in her leaps, Luke tells us she's filled with the Spirit. And what does she do? Boldly proclaims how blessed Mary is, and it changes Mary's perspective. She talks. Her husband, Zachariah, do you remember when he's in the temple and God speaks to him, and he says essentially, God could, in the most holy place, you guys remember this back in Luke? And he says, oh, he hears this voice, and he goes, hey, would you identify yourself, God? Do you have a card that can actually prove? And then he's struck, you guys remember, mute? And then again, he comes around. He's filled with the Spirit. What does he do? Boldly makes a proclamation about Christ and prophesies. Boldly. This one's a little harder for me to understand exactly what's going on, but Luke tells us Jesus. At the end of Luke 3, Jesus is getting baptized. And a dove, uh, the Holy Spirit, looking something like a dove, comes and descends on him. He hears a voice from heaven. Hey, this is my son. Not this is my son. This is my son. Because he's talking about Jesus. Not Jesus, but Jesus. I'm pretty sure that's how the voice from heaven sounds. This is my son. Nobody was going, would you repeat that? I didn't quite get that. This is my son. You guys, this is who he is. This is my son, Jesus. But Jesus gets filled. Luke 4, he goes out into the wilderness. And he's tempted. So how does God himself get filled with the Holy Spirit? We embrace inevitable attentions around here, and that's another one for me. But Jesus is filled. As you go back, in the, in, as we go on in the book of Acts, you're going to see Stephen is going to be filled. He's a man uh, full of the Spirit. They pick him to be a deacon. You get to Acts chapter 7. Guess what he does in Acts chapter 7? Bold proclamation of Jesus that ends up in him being stoned to death. We got Paul. He's going to be filled with the Spirit and boldly again proclaim. So this verb is used elsewhere. And it's Spirit doing something in people in whom he dwells to bolden their expression of who Jesus is. I also want you to notice Peter is going to be filled at least three different times in, in the first four chapters of Acts. At Pentecost, he was one of those 120 
that got it. In Acts chapter 4, he's before the Sanhedrin. He's before the Jewish officials. You know what they're telling him? Stop preaching, stop preaching, stop preaching. Quit talking about Jesus. This is where Peter says, yeah, should I listen to you guys or God? Guess what? Filled with the Spirit, I'm going to listen to God. He ends up getting released. He goes back and tells the early believers, and this is their prayer. Because we're facing a culture where this feels like it's going to be increasingly real for us. They're being told to quit preaching about Jesus. And they understand they're being intimidated. They understand it's causing real fear and the potential for real timidity. So you know what they pray for? How many of you think they pray for safety? Let's read the Bible. They don't pray for safety. They don't say keep us safe. You know what they pray for? Boldness. Not Jesus, but Jesus. Luke tells us there, they're filled with the Spirit. And then he tells us, guess what they did? After they'd been intimidated by the officials and they prayed for boldness, now there's a fourth physical sign of being filled with the Spirit. There's an earthquake. This evidence, God breaks through these natural physical barriers to encourage and to strengthen believers' conviction that this spiritual stuff is real in order that they might be emboldened. And what do they do after they pray? They're filled with the Spirit. Luke makes sure he tells us, and they went and spoke the word of Jesus boldly. Not boldly, boldly. So here's what it is. The Holy Spirit's filling is a special empowering of the Holy Spirit to motivate bolder proclamation of Jesus. And here's the way I'd put it. Because I don't want to draw a strong line between indwelling and, and filling. Uh, put a dotted line, if you will. For me, it's like this. It's, it's like when we moved to Seattle, we got people gave us from Minneapolis, they, they gave us five umbrellas. Now, once you live in Seattle, here's the reality. You can tell somebody with an umbrella and you go, they're a tourist. You know why? Because it never rains that hard. Now, it drizzles for nine or ten months of the year, pretty much 24-7, but it never rains hard enough. For me, that drizzling, and don't press the metaphor too far, that's being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It was just a few months ago. Do you remember the rain we had? I parked my car in the red spot here because it was raining hard right by the front door where you're illegal to park. I got drenched going about 30 feet. 30 feet I got drenched. That's for me kind of a picture of what I think the feeling of the Holy Spirit is. You got this drizzle. Is that great? Is life good? But once in a while, it just rains a little heavier and a little harder. And we're empowered to believe these spiritual things a little more deeply. And that's the work of the Spirit. I think it's usually subsequent to indwelling. I think for some people, maybe they're filled when they come to faith and it accompanies that. But most times, you got Peter there, right? I think he was indwelt and three times in those first four chapters, he's filled. He's empowered. The Holy Spirit is motivating him to more boldly uh, pro pro proclaim the truth. It may include speaking in tongues or other miraculous physical manifestations or it may not. There were four 
physical manifestations, miraculous things that happened there. Part of the abuse of this theology of my estimation is people tend to focus on one, speaking in, in, in tongues. Now, I'm going to tell you a story here, and I hope this makes sense. I was at a pastoral conference, oh, 30 years ago, and if you know the name John Piper, he was there. If you know the name Wayne Grudem, he's the author of the, of the most used systematic theology out there, and if you don't have it, I'd encourage you to get it. I think it's a great book. So I'm there with maybe 20 other pastors and these two guys, and we're talking about this theology. Mention a book called Joy Unspeakable by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'd recommend that as well if you're more interested in thinking about this stuff. But my theology, through other th experiences going on, is undergoing a radical change. Now, some of you may guess, I considered myself very, fairly bold for Jesus. I would have never said Jesus back then. I would have said Jesus even back then. But my theology is undergoing this change. I'm like, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I love you. I trust you. I'm bold. But I told you last week I used the word greedy. I'm not kidding. I'm greedy to be happier. I'm greedier to be more bold. I love Jesus, but I want more. So my theology had undergone this change, and I started praying. And I prayed for months, and it didn't happen. So I'm going to speed up the story. I actually went into a depression. And I look at it retrospectively, for three or four months, I was in a clinical state of depression. And you want to talk about the worst place for me to be. You guys understand happiness and joy is a big idea to me? I was 100% intellectually convinced that what life, life with Jesus was full of joy. I was just feeling none of it. Change the way I encourage people who are wrestling with depression. Here's the problem with depression. For those of you who have never been there, you can't get yourself to do any of the things that you're supposed to do to get out of it, let me just suggest. And, and I was clinically depressed. My wife had tried to get me to a counselor. I said, no, no, no. On Friday, I, I finally told her, on Monday, I'll make an appointment. I'll go see a counselor. I woke up Saturday morning in this cloud, severe cloud with which I'd lived for three or four months, was gone. I remember laying in bed. I was afraid to sit up. Now, I had to go get up to do some stuff. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I was afraid to sit up in bed because I was afraid the depression would come back. Well, finally, the urgency got to a place where I had to get up, and the depression was gone. My sister-in-law and brother both happened to be around town that, that, that day. They were both with me, and they visited with me at separate times during that day. And they said, Todd, you're different. And I expressed a little bit of, uh, of what happened. How did I get there? I was praying for the filling of the Spirit. I think I was filled with the Spirit. I believed I was miraculously healed. Don't, if you're wrestling with depression, I, it may not be God's plan for you. I'm going to speak to that in a second. But you know what it did to my faith? Ah, yeah, these spiritual things are real. There was no explanation for me getting out of that other than God miraculously healing me. And did it inspire my faith? Yes, it did. So could be physical things. Miraculous physical things might not be. You read through the scriptures, lots of people are being filled. They're just filled. Bold proclamation is always the point. We may receive it at different times. It may come and go. The indwelling, once we treasure Christ, is always there. 
But that filling may come. Peter in Acts 4, he's filled again. He'd already been filled twice. That greedy guy. He's there at Pentecost. He preaches that fabulous sermon, that bold proclamation. Then he's filled again in front of the Zanedrin. And then he's filled again. How long did it last? I don't know. Maybe manifest for shorter, longer periods of time. I just said that, didn't I? So we can go on. Given at God's discretion. Here's the reality. God gets to give this when he wants to. So my miraculous healing from depression, here's what God told me. Todd, you are a little bit presumptuous in your praying for me to do something in your life. Here's what I think God told me and taught me. You've been saved. You'd been indwelt by my Holy Spirit. Todd, I'd given you everything you need for a happy life. You're going into a depression not getting this is a sign that you don't quite get who I am and how I work. How did he take me out of it? He healed me. I continue to pray to be filled with the Spirit. If he wants to use some physical thing, please understand whatever that physical thing is, I'm okay with it. I'm more than okay with it. I'm good with it. So far, there's been no physical manifestation beyond that healing. But I think there might be. I'm not going to limit how God chooses to work. The point of it is to convince us of the reality of spiritual things and to embolden us. For, uh, But when do we receive it? Anybody, based upon that last point, when do we receive it? Somebody be bold in the Holy Spirit. When do we receive it? When he decides he wants to give it to us. And his timing isn't necessarily ours. And given to motivate bolder proclamation of the Jesus. That's the point. When I look at this one side that I started with where it feels like to be abused, it feels like to me people are just being entertained by this and it's going into some places where they're just fascinated and what an interesting show. The point of being filled, read through the Gospels, through Acts, that we might more boldly testify to who Jesus is, that the reality of his life, his death, and resurrection impact us even uh, a, a little more great, uh, a little more fully. So I think it's good to ask for it. They prayed for it in Acts 4. Is he necessarily going to give it the way we want it to be given? I hope what you heard from my own story, he has taught me no. But is there a power available to us that's a little greater than maybe what we're making use of? I think maybe. What's it going to look like? People a little gentler, a little kinder, a little more loving, a little more gracious, and more bold in talking about Jesus. So how do I think of this? I read this somewhere, and I don't remember from whom I read it, so I'd like to give them credit, but I can't. But as a father, it touched me. I'm walking along the beach. I have four kids. I got my son here today, Carson. He's a young kid, and we're just walking along the beach, and we're hand in hand, and everything is great. And he knows I love him. 
He knows I'd do anything for him. But then you get to those places where holding his hand just isn't enough. That's indwelling. I just got to pick him up and squeeze him tight and say, son, I adore you. Now walking along the beach hand in hand, that's fabulous. That's great. That's good. Then once in a while, I think God may just want to hug us and tell us a little more fully. How does he do that? Sometimes he may use supernatural, miraculous, physical things. Other times his spirit just moves without that. But we just go, Jesus is real. And it gives us more confidence, more assurance that we belong to him. And a greater passion, a greater desire, a greater boldness. That other people might experience that walking along the beach with Jesus as well. Thanks, Father, for loving us. Thanks for working. Thanks for sending the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we, we want to be more and more infatuated with you. We want to experience more joy in our relationship with you. Father, we love you, we trust you, we treasure you, but we want to treasure you more. We want to see your glory more spectacularly. The limits of the sin we're still wrestling with, of being living in this world, keep us from seeing that. But I pray that your spirit would do something in me and in our church family beyond what we've experienced thus far. Father, we're not bringing the attitude to it that I brought those 30-odd years ago. We're grateful for what we enjoy. We are grateful for the joy we have in you. We're grateful for this life, for what we're experiencing, for what we're expressing. But Father, if it would be your desire to fill us even more, that would be our request. We pray this as always, ultimately, for the fame and glory of your name. Secondly, for our own spiritual benefit, we want to be even more convinced of the reality of spiritual life in Jesus and Jesus alone. And then for the benefit of those folks that we work with, that we live next door to, that might even be family members that need to see the love of Jesus, Father. Fill us, fill us, fill us embolden us in your spirit. That's our prayer.